honestly, I was just working my way up to death. I thought about killing myself every day. I was using all the time, and I, that's not a sustainable lifestyle. My brother shot himself because of drugs. When you are using technology to lure children for sexual purposes, there's a couple of problems that concern me. But I remember feeling kind of relieved after hurting myself. Do you have any idea how much you were worth? I like to say it this way, great people are really built in the furnace of affliction. Our teens are navigating a world of information anarchy and increased stress and pressure. Drugs are glorified more than ever before and there seems to be a suicide option that didn't exist prior. As adults, we are responsible to provide the help at-risk teens need. Have teens changed or is it just the world they live in that's different? Is this why so many teens are traumatized or triggered? My name is Aaron Huey, and in 2009, I opened a home for these teens with the hopes of giving them a second chance at creating the life we all know they deserve. Now I want to give parents the information that contributed to our success and to support them in navigating the at-risk world. These are the stories told by the teens and the techniques used by experts to help them. Welcome to Beyond Risk and Back. So once again, treatment centers and rehabs have gotten a bad rap. And I think the question is, 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 do they deserve it? And certainly there have been things that have happened at treatment centers and to people who have gone in for help that certainly deserve news and, and arguably national news. Um, but when I, see, when I see John Oliver, who I'm a huge fan of, you know, do one of his uh, uh, big coverages on what is going on in Florida. When I see how hard wilderness programs have had to fight in Congress to um, have themselves be equated to treatment so that they can be covered by insurance um, because of something that happened, terrible things that happened in the 90s, it seems to me as an owner of a treatment center that we need to give the clear straight facts about what to look for and what to shy away from, what to run from, and what to call the state on. Uh, if your kid's been in treatment, um, if you're looking for a treatment facility, where do you go for the real information? My guest today has been involved um, with so many treatment facilities, has run a number of them, um, is on the board. Uh, I met her giving a talk uh, to interventionists uh, about the archetypes, and I could tell that she and I had uh, uh, the, uh, agreements on what treatment centers, as I was mentioning things that we do at our facilities, I could see her uh, not in agreement. Um, and without talking to her further than that, I wanted to bring her on and just ask her expertise about what to look for and what to uh, run away from. My guest today, is Dr. Judith Landau, and this is Beyond Risk and Back. Dr. Landau, thank you so much for being on the show uh, for parents, teachers, and clinicians to help them figure out how best to help their kids. I appreciate it. Aaron, thank you so much for inviting me. I um, am delighted to, to be able to talk with you because we clearly do have some very strong opinions about treatment and what is good for people, and um, and I'm really, really glad to participate. Wonderful. So let's let's go ahead and get started with uh, you telling people your background. Oh sure, um, it's a lengthy background, so I'll try and be as brief as possible. Um, I am absolutely passionate about having people act acknowledge that they are inherently resilient and that we need to be able to access that sense of competence and health and resilience if we want to deal with trauma, addiction, and other co-occurring disorders like mental illness. So I have spent my life um, both as an academic, um, running ac an academic department. I was a professor of psychiatry and family medicine and I'm a neuropsychiatrist, so also a neurologist. And I have um, made a commitment to developing, developing ways of working that will help families, individuals, and communities be able to prevent 
a lot of the problems that we're dealing with right now, treat them and get into long-term recovery. Um, I consult to a number of treatment centers um, around the world and um, have developed several evidence-based best practice methods for individuals, families, and communities. And one of the things that I have focused on is working across cultures so that we can really help people wherever they are. So as a senior Fulbright scholar, I've worked in a number of countries <clears throat> and served as consultant to our National Institutes on Drug Abuse, um, Alcohol Abuse, um, World Health, United Nations, and so on, and several international governments on the design of prevention, treatment, and con continuing care services, and how to help individuals, families, and communities know what is going to work for them and how to be able to achieve that while really healing. Um, as a side note, I'm also a traditional African healer, an Isangoma. So I'm really passionate about bridging our healing world with modern medicine. And in, my, in our current work, we have an intervention that is one of the evidence, actually one of the, the only evidence-based best practice method for getting people into treatment, keeping them there, and long-term recovery, um, the ARISE method, which is based on believing that families and individuals have the capacity to heal. And we do a lot of consultation and training of treatment centers. And there, I think the, the, the important thing about what I found in that consultation work is that there are many more good than bad ones. As, as we get started, I want to make sure that you and I are as much as possible discussing facilities and treatment concepts uh, for for kids and their families, so that people know that they're if they're listening to this and they're looking for help, that they're truly in the right place, and um, that if you have a young adult, 18, 19, 20, um, I think a lot of the things that we will be talking about will um, contribute to your search and helping you find uh, the uh, uh, the right type of of concept. But I'm I'm primarily wanting to to support families who are dealing with kids who are really struggling. Right, um, right. so, so just, let, me, let me just yeah, add go. to that. So I am by training a child, adolescent and family neuropsychiatrist and family therapist and family life certified family life educator. And Erin, um, one of the things I would like to, I, I know our focus is 12 and up, but I would also, in case there are you know, people listening who have children who are younger, I would really like to include them in terms of prevention. Wonderful. Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. I want to start with the probably one of the most basic questions about um, treatment. And maybe, maybe, maybe one way to call this is old school treatment versus what's going on now or the new, uh, the new wave of treatment, what used to work, what does work. When we began, we never once have considered being a 28 or a 30 day program, not once. And at the very beginning, Fire Mountain was a 30 day, uh, a 90 day program. And when we increased to 120 day minimum, um, we saw our success rate jump up quite a bit. So let's talk about a family's looking for a program for their kids and they find this 28, 30 day program. Is that even worth it to look at anymore? Absolutely not. It never has been. You know, I think people don't realize that the only reason the 28-day program was invented was with the returning veterans. The insurance for veterans was limited to 28 days. So they developed, the military developed a 28-day program. It has never had any sound backing in science. And in fact, with one of the things about about youth is that they're extremely vulnerable 
to substances and also to process addictions. And we want to catch them while their brains, so that their brains are immature and really vulnerable, um, which is the bad news. The good news is that if we can treat them properly, they still have maturation time in their brains to allow them to heal. So we do not want to have them in a brief treatment where their brains are not yet healing and they're going to go out and have cravings and not have developed the behavior changes that they need for long-term health. A lot of times we'll get parents coming into the facility and they'll say, well, my kid went to you know, an adolescent psychiatric unit uh, um, in Colorado. We have some wonderful ones, Highlands, um, uh, 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 Denver Springs. Um, we, we, have, we have some nice ones, but the, the parents come to us and say, you know, it did nothing. They were there for three days, they changed their meds and then they sent them home. And it takes a minute to explain to parents that these are crisis units and crisis units are there to stabilize and possibly restrict behaviors so that the child does not hurt themselves or others. But they are in no way, shape, or form intended to create any long-term strategies, really. They might do a safety plan or something, but these are not long-term strategies at all. Can you speak a little bit more to that? Yes, absolutely. The The challenge with, with the, the brief treatment programs is that they are literally there for acute management. You know, think about somebody who has um, who has lung disease. And if you were to say, okay, we're going to get them started on their meds, we'll do a quick x-ray, we'll, and then we'll send them up, but we won't do anything more. Um, when we're dealing with, with addiction, we're dealing with substance use disorder, we're dealing with brains. And the the brain is very is is slow to heal like any other body part you know we wouldn't put a a, um, a splint on a child who's broken broken his leg and tell him okay now you've got the splint on why don't you run that marathon you were planning right we've got to allow the time for healing we also wouldn't just put the splint on for 10 minutes and say okay your legs now straight off you go we have to support and change the way in which in which people interact, understand behavior, deal with all the underlying issues, which are often what's going on in their environment at school, um, in their relationships, um, college if they're college kids, um, and family. And we have to get everybody healthy and everyone's behavior in line or we're going to have relapse. And if I can talk just a little bit about why it's so important with, with young folk, um, their brains, um, some of the ways in which we can see that the brains are not yet mature is that um, brains and our, our um, nerves have a develop a protective coating called myelin that um, similarly to if you have a baby and you clap your hands loudly, the baby goes into, the whole baby will shake. Um, and it's as though we're touching an electric cord without the plastic coating. And that myelin develops slowly and isn't really fully developed until well into the mid-20s. And we're now learning even later. So that's one way of telling that the brain is is tremendously vulnerable and um, that we have to be very careful about complete healing or at least much longer term healing um, the brain only recovers particularly immature brains about halfway in six months if the brain cells have been challenged so we have to be extremely careful about, about longer-term work with people. And each child is a little different. We all have similar brains. We have similar substances in our brains. But each one is unique in the amount and the quality of what we need to heal. And that's why a treatment center that really works individually and is ready to keep 
your young person, as long as needed, is going to be way, way better than any that say, we do 30 days, we do 90 days. You want to know that there's a minimum of a, a minimum of 90, preferably a whole lot longer. And very much the way Erin is saying, that individual assessment of how long it needs to be. And so I want to get I want, I want to get back to the the, the length of stay, but you've mm -hmm. you've uh, touched on something else that that I really feel needs addressed, and I want to continue with your kind of acute urgent care concept for a second. I have noticed that um, while I was in Spain, I broke my foot, and I went to the emergency room, and I knew it was broken. I could see the way it was swelling, the way mm -hmm. it felt and everything. The nurse walked in. She knew it was broken with the way it was swelling, with how I was explaining it. Um, they took me down. Uh, they did an x-ray. They said, yep, it's broken. And they put it on a splint. They gave me follow-up um, uh, care instructions. They asked if I wanted any medications. I said, no, ibuprofen's fine. They sent me on my way. Now, that is normal standard protocol for a broken bone. And if you say, hey, this arm is not functioning correctly, the first thing they do is they take a picture of it. Judith, why are we in a state of consistency with the idea that when a child's brain is not working or it's dysfunctional, mm -hmm. that the first thing that psychiatrists are doing is throwing medications at it instead of doing an MRI, taking an X-ray, doing um, neuro... Uh, uh, um, doing a neurological assessment, a, a yes. neurological. Why aren't we looking at the most complicated organism on the planet, number one? And number two, it's in a current state of crisis. And number three, with an adolescent, it's in a massive stage of development. Absolutely. It seems to be a hyper uh, uh, crisis organism and we are literally saying, try this, we'll see if it works, come back in two weeks. Right, try right, this, we'll see right, if it works, come back right. in two weeks. Yeah. What happened um, to looking at the brain? <laughs> well, I'm going to tell you something that I don't broadcast. Being a child psychiatrist, um, I was having massive battles with the insurance companies when I moved to Colorado after I um, took early retirement from my academic chair. And I refused to medicate children without a very good reason for doing it. And the insurance companies wouldn't reimburse the families. And I, I um, stopped my license. I work as a, as a um, psychotherapist. I work as a family life educator. Um, I will not medicate children unnecessarily. So I voted with my feet. And I, I can't tell you how strongly I agree with you. Um, in, in the Child and Adolescent Treatment Center that I designed and ran, we started with very, very thorough assessment. What are the underlying reasons? What's going on at home? What's going on at the school? Is this a, is this a young person who has learning challenges? There are so many different reasons for becoming for trying drugs, alcohol, gambling, gaming, internet, um, that have nothing to do with a dependence on, well, that with anything that needs medication. And um, a lot of the tests can be done. I think part of the reason that they don't automatically do a brain scan is cost. And now that we have SPECT scans, they're a lot less expensive and ultimately they're a lot less expensive than drugs. And I don't believe any of that should be first line. I think first line is a thorough biopsychosocial assessment of you know, the biological individual, what's going on in their social life, what's going on in their psyche, um, what's happened in their environment and what's happening in the family because time that kids start using is when there is stress in their environment. And we know that trauma and stress in the family, um, any of us dealing with somebody, dealing with major stress, starts looking for relief. And I absolutely agree with you, medication is not the first call. You know, when a, when a child comes into our facility, um, 
you know, in addition to all the, the the standard assessments that you do upon a an intake and an interview process, uh, once they're admitted, the first thing we do is a neurotransmitter and a and a genetics test because we want to know if if there's a neurological issue going on, something's not working. And but before we even get to the meds, we're often running with vitamins and supplements, exercise, and healthy food because if the body's not working, what can you expect of the brain? Mm -hmm. So. All right, let's get back to the the time frame because you know we're like I said we're currently a four month minimum program. We'll keep a child as long as necessary, and there is research starting to emerge that's saying beyond seven months. And I'm I'm hearing parents bring this into their when they're touring and stuff that beyond seven seven months, uh, we're starting to see attachment issues again. And certainly when you have a kid with reactive attachment disorder or some kind of attachment disorder, um, including just you know struggles with connecting with the family, that if there's not a consistent family presence within treatment, that we see attachment things emerge. And, and I know with our clinical team, once you hit that six month, six and a half month mark, you've gotta be really conscious and I've heard some facilities say anything less than 18 months is worthless. Where do you stand on this? Um, well, the, there's an enormous amount of research showing that if you maintain connection with the family and do the family work, um, as and this is why we do a wraparound with families all the time that the, that the that the, the young person is in treatment. If you can do the work getting the family healthy and have them at least once a week in a video conference meeting, a family therapy meeting with that youth, you can avoid the, um, the, the attachment issues. And the, the longer, the, the more the family is involved and the more the wraparound with family, the, the higher the outcome, like the likelihood of good outcome. Um, you know, there, there, there are a lot of, there's a lot of research showing how important it is to do the individual work because of all the developmental issues. But if it's done in isolation from parallel family work and collaborative con congruent family work, um, you're not going to get the same results and you're going to run into the risk. It's almost like taking a piece of a motor out of your car, changing it and then trying to put it back in again. So, um, you know, that, that's a that, great way to, that's a great way to explain it. Yeah. One of the, one of the problems is that families are often so burned out and exhausted by the time oh, the kid sure. goes to treatment that they just want a break. And, um, they're going to have a break, but they also can't disappear, and they're going to have to work almost as hard as their kid, if not harder. That's, to make a, that's sure kind that of one of the old work. school models, isn't it? That you can drop your kid off at one of these places and pick mm -hmm. some, pick them up 18 yeah. months later, and they're fixed. Right, and unfortunately, Aaron, there are still treatment centers, adolescent treatment yeah. centers like that. It, you, you know, my it makes my blood curdle, but um, there <laughs> are. Since <laughs> since you and I last met, we actually. Uh, added a fourth per week uh, parent connection piece. And we actually started a thing called Sunday dinner where we want the families to show up for dinner on Sundays and we feed the families with the Wonderful. kids. So the whole yeah. tribe. But what we've actually done is turned it into a therapeutic process. It's not mm -hmm. a free for all because we have realized that we have to teach families how to sit down and have a meal together again. Of course. It's, well, it's, the family I'm, meals are a thing of the past. Oh and we have gosh. to bring it back. You know? <laughs> Yeah. Okay, so so next question, 12 steps for kids and teenagers. What do you think of the traditional 12-step model for adolescents? Ah, that's a, that's a really tricky question. Um, you know, I think kids, I, I think it's really important, I believe that it's really important for kids to learn to participate in, in, in healthy groups. I don't have strong feelings about which groups, you know, as long as they're groups that are oriented to health and healing and participating together, whether it's um, whatever it is. And there's so many different forms. To me, the, the important thing is that 
when they go home, they're going to be in whatever group it is that also fits with their family philosophy so that we're not creating a division between the child and the parents. So um, I try and, um, you know, I believe in providing a lot of different options to the family, including the kid, so that they can find um, a way of being in a healthy long-term group that is both social and health oriented that works for them all. Okay. You know, maybe a child, you know, like the 12 step has the kids form in an adult form. Um, a lot of the Buddhist groups do the same. Um, I don't, I think that fellowship is more important than which, which one it is. Got it. Yeah. Okay, so so let's talk about um, abstinence versus harm reduction. And and for parents who might struggle with with that concept, mm -hmm. there is in recovery, you're either going to say don't do anything, never again, mm -hmm. or you got to start doing less. You got to re mm -hmm. reduce the harm. And Judith, you and I know that well with with harm reduction for things like internet addiction and food issues and uh, sex addiction mm -hmm. um, with, with teenagers and stuff like that, you, you have to create a harm reduction concept. Abstinence mm -hmm. becomes, you can't abstain from food. You're not right. going to abstain from sex long-term. Mm -hmm. And uh, our world is, is focused around the internet mm -hmm. now. So mm -hmm. what do you think with, especially huh. when it comes to cutting and drug use, especially yes. around marijuana use, abstinence yes. or harm reduction? Yeah. Well, let me just backtrack quickly. I want to say very clearly that I'm in long-term recovery and, you know, to me, the 12 step, 12 step is, is, you know, a phenomenal movement that is international. I still go to meetings. I just wanted to, you know, so, so that's my own leaning. And we, you know, in my own programs, we've always started kids that way because it's international and wherever they go, they can grow into the adult form. So I just wanted to say that, but I so think great. that when there are, Groups, you know, obviously you're doing group work with the kids in the program, and I think that already gets them started. So let's get to harm reduction. Well, well, let me yeah. let me let me follow up on that one because we actually do the twelve steps. However, because right. I'm a product mm -hmm. of the of the twelve steps. Yeah. yeah. However. I don't believe personally that the 12 steps are designed for adolescent brain development. They're not. They're so not. We, we've gone in and we've changed every one of the steps to match. So rather than right. saying um, I'm powerless um, and, and I need, you know, the higher power to handle this one for me. Um, what we say is I can't do this alone anymore. I need help right. to change. Perfect. Because, an, you know, an adolescent brain is, you know, the ego isn't developed enough to to agree with I'm powerless. Um, well, I, I also think that if the if the big book had been written today, um, it would be yes. very very different. We wouldn't have people identifying as addicts. You know, youth are not addicts yet. Right, they're Agreed. struggling. They're testing, and we don't talk about there goes Mr. Cancer or there's, you know, there's the fracture, there's the pneumonia. And I think we have to change language, not just for children, but also for adults, right. so that we talk about recovery and we talk about um, recurrence like we do with cancer. So rather than the blaming language that has been so evident and that supports the stigma in the community, you know, out in the community. And I think starting that different way of looking with adolescents and changing language is just critical. I'm thrilled that you're doing it. Um, and that's that's one of three groups a day. Like like the the group piece is a is a must. If if the mm -hmm. if the child cannot learn to live within a group, that will extend to all groups. The the social group, the family social group, the all social dynamics will suffer. And, and and truly, I think this is one of the things that I saw you and I agree on is that children aren't broken. Systems are broken, and if we this is this is why the family system and creating a system for recovery like what the twelve steps offer, and uh, you know how long the brain system is going to take to truly mm -hmm. heal, it is it's systems that have failed. Mm -hmm. Children have not failed; they have been failed by systems, and for them, 
because of the failure of the systems, there's neurological damage, there's environmental damage, and that's a chicken and egg argument in itself. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so once the healing begins, teaching them how to work with themselves within the system, mm -hmm. because the system doesn't care about the individual. The system cares about the survival of the system. So once a child is part of their own survival system and they are part of their own, okay, here's how I get my needs met without necessarily depending on a system that may or may not be able to meet my needs. Mm -hmm. Once I can find a way to get these needs met in a healthy form, I can survive any system. And that's where we try to get kids. And that takes so much more time. And so let's, let's bridge that by saying, okay, when a child is struggling, and they're moving towards dependency because of now they're playing video games 13 hours a day. And now the, the, the promiscuity is becoming damaging and there's health issues that have created the food control, the body dysmorphia, the self-harm. Is it abstinence or is it, is it uh, uh, harm reduction? How do you get a kid to do it or not do it at all? It's a, it's a great question. And I'm, I'm going to take it a little more broadly. Um, I like to think of harm reduction when they're little. So many of the adolescents, you know, 11, 12 plus that I see, have become, have become dependent on sugars, video games, much, you know, from the age of two or three. And I think we need to start that harm reduction when they're little rewarding them with um, with relationships, with joy, with fun activities rather than with sugars, with limiting the amount of time they get on screens, with finding ways of, um, of fulfilling their needs for excitement in healthier right. ways. Because I think we're, we're, that harm reduction needs to start really, really early and it would prevent a lot of the kids we see who develop violent behavior in their early teens. So then to move on, um, I, I have a problem with harm reduction in general. I, I believe that addiction is addiction is addiction. And when we're talking about our teens, we're not talking about addiction yet. We're talking about substance use disorder. We're talking about compulsive behavior disorder that can be managed without drugs most of the time. And the challenge with our current medical system is that I believe a lot of the medication is just shooting from the hip and doing the easiest thing and prolonging the dependence. And if we if we do individual and family life education around um, relationships and sexual behavior and food um, and, and um, how to deal with the environment in healthy ways, we're not going to need harm reduction. Providing adequate treatment as opposed to medication is going to help them far better in the longer term one of the reasons I get so angry about it is that um, in Eastern Europe, methadone became the drug of choice. All over the world right now, sure, we're sure. seeing Suboxone as the drug of choice. And wherever I've worked, and I've worked in over 100 countries, I've seen the whatever medication is being used for addiction becomes the street drug of choice. Wow. And... And, and what we're seeing with the current pandemic, I believe, is the vulnerability because we haven't been educating adequately. And what we're doing in a lot of the you know, treatment is short-term treat, short treatment, which in fact doesn't prevent relapse at all. And what you're doing is allowing, allowing the young people to get truly healthy in your program and with the family so that they don't need to relapse, they don't need to become dependent on drugs. Now, I'm not saying that psychiatric medication isn't needed, but there has to be a very careful assessment before it's given. And I just want to give one example. 
um, there's a there are a disproportionate number of young people who use compulsive behaviors or substances to try to read to try to develop some self-esteem many of those have experienced learning challenges we're living in a country where nobody tests for learning challenges until somebody is in trouble um, when i was the president of the psychiatric association in south africa back in the early 70s we mandated that every child was had a preliminary assessment for learning challenges and other issues before they entered school, you know, at school entry. Right, of course. So that one could do two or three years of, of you know, of, of highly focused education that they then flew. And, you know, we need to be advocating for the things that prevent our kids getting severely depressed, losing self-esteem, finding a social group that um, has them feel good about themselves. And so many of those children are the super bright children who don't understand that, that they have the capacity and will with maturity be able to do really well. All right, let's jump into wilderness therapy programs. Now I wanna, I, I, I wanna start this by saying I got my beginning trainings in the world of treatment through a wilderness uh, training program for prisoners, uh, kids who were not in jail, but in prison, um, working time off their sentence in the deep backwoods. I loved that job. Um, and when insurance companies and state policy allowed my program, Fire Mountain, we were what we called a one quarter wilderness, where once a month for a week, our kids were out for a week on a wilderness trip. And we had a wilderness therapy team to do that, but then would come home for the other three weeks of the month and do traditional um our version of traditional treatment. Um, I don't do that anymore. And I'm curious as to, when we talk about rehabs that have gotten a bad rap, wilderness is one that has taken a major hit across the chin, primarily for injuries and even deaths that have taken mm -hmm. place. And I know it to be a very successful intervention model if it is only used as an assessment. And, and people will disagree on that piece, but I'm curious to your thoughts. Mm -hmm. Yeah, thank you. Um, you know, again, I usually rely on research and there's very little at the moment doing, in fact, I'm not aware of studies that do a comparison. So this is very much a personal opinion. My own programs were much more, you know, therapeutic community with family involvement and all the way through. Um, one of my concerns about, there's, I have several several thoughts on this. Um, brief wilderness, I think is wonderful. But if it's if somebody is in an acute situation, I worry about wilderness rather than rather than residential treatment. Uh, there are several wilderness part wilderness programs where the kids are out for a few days and then back in back in for treatment. So I'm interested that that was something that you used to do and stopped. So I'd love to hear, you know, what led to that. It's um, very easy and it's very heartbreaking. The insurance companies told us that if the kids aren't sleeping in the facility, they must not need residential and they started denying payment. Oh, isn't because, that brutal? Oh, that is awful because, you know, the two programs that I know that do that blend are doing extremely well and i think the you know my my concern about most of the wilderness programs is that they don't have trained counselors out with the kids no, the, we had wilderness you know, the programs that yeah level. you would of course yeah. and the programs that the wilderness the part wilderness programs that i like have the have the therapists both when they're in-house and when they're out and it's brief periods out and the majority of the work in-house. Um, I worry enormously about the wilderness programs where the kids are out for extended periods, because to me that's not, you know, that would be fine once they've had treatment, 
But if we're putting kids in for treatment, they need the treatment and they're not getting enough of it when they're out in longer term wilderness. I think it's great as a secondary thing to do or for assessment in terms of social skills and functioning, but not as a long term solution. All right. There is um, <laughs> this emerged, I guess, in the last 10 years as a concept. The truth is the people in the industry have always held this belief. People outside of the industry who might recommend people into treatment, suddenly this became very important. And I'm talking about trauma informed. And it's a term that parents might hear for the first time when they're talking to a place like like my place. Um, but I, I can easily say nine out of every 10 kids I have, uh, have had trauma and that that's, that's an, it's easy to say. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm comfortable saying every single kid I've ever worked with ever <laughs> has been a product of a trauma of some sort that has, was the beginning of the chicken and egg and the chicken and egg argument being, is this environmental? Is this neurological? And parents who have a hard time with understanding trauma, I want to push you towards one of the other shows with Sherry Simmons, where we talk about trauma, but trauma informed, should parents be looking for trauma informed mm -hmm. facilities? Um, you know, I think, I mean, it's interesting, the term trauma informed, as you say, is new. Um, <laughs> my program in 1966 was based on the on on the extensive research that everyone having problem behavior, particularly substance or compulsive behavior, has experienced trauma. I mean, there's never been any question about it, and there there you know there are reams of research, not just from the U.S. but from many other countries that trace the trauma back to childhood. And I think one of the things, um, not just childhood trauma, but also trauma in the family, you know, um, refugees, immigrants, people who've lived through families, who've lived through mass disaster, grandmothers who lost lots of children. The, there is a 30% increase in addiction in future generations. I did a TEDx talk called Family Stories, Secrets, and Survival about how trauma reverberates across generations. And then one of the studies that is done more recently um, called ACE looked specifically at child trauma and the relationship to, to problem behavior. And there, um, you know, it's one of the, one of the assessments that we do whenever we, you know, with with every with every young person that we see, is we do the ten question questionnaire. And I absolutely agree with you that if trauma, you know, if resolving trauma and understanding the trauma is not part of a program, don't touch it, because it is the essence. Every single person struggling with addiction, there has been unresolved grief trauma and loss. And one of the challenges with kids is that we often don't know what that trauma is without doing, you know, without asking the right questions, because it could be bullying. It Each of us has a different reaction to stressful situations. And something that one person will, in, will experience as trauma may not be somebody else's trauma. And sometimes families will say, well, I don't know, none of the other kids reacted that way, therefore it's not traumatic. If right. that child experiences it as traumatic, it is trauma. You know, one of the things that's so hard for, for adoptive parents, you know, parents who have brought, brought a child into their home to give that child a good life, mm -hmm. and this one's hard, is, is the parents to say, we've given them everything. How can they be traumatized? And, mm -hmm. it, you know, that that's an education that the parents don't have, and it's very simply that. It's not a – and it, it's hard. That, mm -hmm. To truly understand what trauma is, and and you explained it beautifully. It it could be a divorce, it could be a pet dying, mm -hmm. it could see, mm -hmm. be seeing a violent video online when you're too young and your brain can't handle it. Mm -hmm. 
you really yeah i had one child who there had been a fire in the house next door right you know right yeah and right. and you know i often encourage parents to just go online and look at the the ace by the way stands for adverse childhood experiences and it was an extensive study with um 17000 families and very simple 10 simple questions and um you know if you think about a parent going off for an extended work time and the little one feeling they have to take over running the household even though they may not have to that their trauma is so individual and related to changes in that child's environment and only that child can know and share with you whether that was traumatic I'm looking at the Adverse Childhood Experience, the ACE mm -hmm. questionnaire right now. Ten simple mm -hmm. questions. I think every parent should go look at this and 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 answer it themselves and yes. realize the extent of how easily someone can be traumatized. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. This, is, this is a very simple one. So, so simple, I know that uh, parents who I've asked these types of questions to, they're, they're response tends to be relatively flippant yes but that happened to all of us or mm -hmm. you know that, that, that well that happened to all my sisters like that's that's somehow because it happened to everybody in your family no one's traumatized you know mm -hmm. and that's it's trauma's a tough one and mm -hmm. and parents really struggle with that one because a i don't think we want to think our kids are traumatized yeah and I, and i think Aaron, sometimes i say to parents don't think of trauma think about stress yeah and remember your own childhood and what was stressful having a depressed parent you know a, a mother who's who's lost a baby right you know you won't look at that as your trauma but the stress of her not being available right so really looking at it in not just the individual um, experience of that particular young person but what was going on in their household when they were growing up? No, so so let's let's move from this question because some of the things that get talked about. Uh, I'm a very faithful person. I have a very strong belief system, um, and and so I want to talk about faith-based recovery. Mm -hmm. um, what do you think? I, I mean, if you're if you, especially when you're dealing with the kid, you want to try to keep them. You know, connected to the church concepts, or do you want the kid to to head outside of that for treatment? What would you What would you recommend to a family? You know, I think there are some wonderful programs that are that there are phenomenal programs that are faith based. There are great programs that are not faith based. There are program. If there were a program that is anti faith, I would say run away as fast as you can <laughs> because to me the the connection to something beyond oneself is a critical part of healing um i'm going to just share a little personal vignette um, i was six when my father died and had i not felt that i could pray to someone beyond myself i don't know what i how i would have coped and, um, you know, I think the, a lot of this depends on the family and maintaining, and, and it's a very challenging thing because sometimes we have families that are agnostic or, or atheist and they don't want their child to be exposed to anything around faith. Um, I think it's really important that, that, that they understand that what we're giving their young person is a sense of belonging in a world where there is something bigger than themselves, whatever it is that they choose to believe in. And if the family is deeply religious, we don't want to send them to a program that's going to create a split between the child and the parents. So, mm -hmm. but again, I think the quality of the program matters more than whether or not it's faith-based. 
Okay. Um, I want to I want to talk about DBT and CBT, and for people who don't know, that means dialectical behavioral therapy or cognitive behavior therapy. And I and I want to put into this DBT and CBT. I want to also talk about equine and um, electrostimulus has has come back. What we used to call shock treatment has come back. Judith, are there gimmicks that that facilities try to grab on to to get the insurance companies to pay or get to the parents who are interested in stuff that that quite frankly don't provide the evidence. I have DBT mm -hmm. groups and CBT groups. We did equine. Now we're doing wolf therapy. So we do mm -hmm. more canine focused stuff. Mm -hmm. um, and the people who own uh, Sound of the Wolf Healing Center, mm -hmm. um, they're both uh, uh, adolescent treatment. They're, oh, they're right. aren't they amazing people, yes, right? Yes, they are. They are. So they're, but they're specialized for kids our age and working with wolves is great. But we've done equine over the years. We've done wilderness stuff. What mm -hmm. are the gimmicks that are out there? Is DBT and CBT a gimmick or um, is it really the real stuff? No, those are evidence-based best practice. You know, they have been studied and found to have an effect, you know, have a positive effect. DBT's parent was neuro-linguistic programming. NLP. Which, yeah, NLP. And it, you know, both um, cognitive behavioral therapy was developed actually when I was a professor at Penn, University of Pennsylvania. Um, also really well researched. They're both excellent, um, you know, excellent forms of work, but they do not replace working with a group. And I worry about, you know, those are not gimmicks. I worry about them being used without family therapy, without individual therapy, as though on their own, mm. they are going to bring about healing especially with young people, they're great adjuncts to a good treatment center. They're not great on their own. What do you think uh, about equine? Equine therapy done really well and, and properly is excellent. Many treatment centers add it without formal training. They just feel if we have a couple of horses and let the kids you know, be with them, that'll do it. And they don't have adequately trained people. And it's the same as an adequately trained therapist. I always look for, you know, who are the people who are most in contact with the youth. And I want them to be experienced, qualified, and know what they're doing. So like any other treatment, I think it's really important that they're, you know, that they are properly done. And I think but, it's the same with CBT. You know, you don't just read a book and go do it. Let's end with um, the five things that a parent, when they're calling a treatment center, should be on the lookout for. What are, what are the five things you want a parent to hear from the admissions department or while they're on a tour? The first thing is promise of a connection with their child as a unique human being. Now, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm not going to be orthodox in my response, which I'm sure you, you know already from talking <laughs> with me. Um, I don't want to hear about the facilities first. I want to hear about their connection with their child. What, um, you know, the, I want to hear, second, I want to hear about who the people are who are going to be with them. I want to hear about a healthy balance of activities and curriculum. I want to hear about a lot of group work and I want to know that my family is going to be involved and that there will be an accent not just on my family for the sake of the kid, but on getting everybody healthy. All right. I've got parents' connection with their child. So like, um, just to clarify, I'm not, this not is... talking parents, Erin. I'm talking extended family. Understood. I'm talking a minimum of three generations. All three generations. Family. Yeah, and because family. a lot of programs just do parents or one parent. Siblings, right. grandparents, aunts, uncles, whoever is in, going to be involved in the long-term life of that child. Got it. So your first one was 
family connection with the child. Second one you had is who is with the child. So you're talking yeah, about the staff, treaters, who, the, the staff. And I'm talking okay. about the staff at each level. Yes. I want to know that the philosophy of the program goes to the gardeners and the cooks and that they're all Brilliant. focused on health. Brilliant. Third, uh, that was so, the so, third. You know, I'm not going to go into it, but nutrition, exercise, yes. you know, all the other things. Yeah, go in that one. Your yeah. fourth one was balance of the activities and the curriculum. Mm -hmm. um, and then your fifth one was the family involvement. How do they, and, uh, and, how are they and, part of the intervention and treatment? Right. And, and, and the continuum. What is that right. so family, not just, you know, the family, at the, you know, all the way through treatment and what is going to go on with family and child when they leave treatment, that seamless passage, rite of passage out back to the family. Right. Uh, Judith, how can, how can parents get more information about you or from you or watch your videos? What's a, what's a good place to send people if, if a parent, a teacher, a clinician has said, I need to learn more from this lady? Um, probably our website would be the best, um, www.arise-arise-dash, um, or hyphen, depending on what age you are, um, arise-network.com. And um, if anyone wants to call me, I provide my cell phone very happily. It's 720-935-3755. And can a parent call you to help them stage an intervention or to set up time with you? What is what would a parent call you for? Right? What a um, for a consultation, for um, you know, certainly for getting someone into treatment, um, for help with with placement. And I, I'm sure you that whoever's listening already understands that I think the world of Aaron and his program. So. Um, but it may or may not be suitable for everyone. And we do a lot of very careful work on selecting where someone should go. And I'm not alone in the network. We, um, we train a large number of people to a very high standard to have them certified. And um, we have a service that they participate in as well. So we do have a hotline number for, for the service. And that is 877-229-5462. All right. So, folks, the hotline number is 877-229-5462 uh, to get in touch with uh, the network. It's www.arise-network.com. I also see arisetraining.com. I'm assuming, Judith, that that's for people like me who want to uh, talk to you about the the uh, training for staff and stuff like that. To bring yeah, and and okay. you would be caught. You would probably be contacting Arise Consulting for okay. staff training. Okay. <laughs> Judith, um, as I as I pull my head out of the sand of building this facility and this treatment paradigm that we're trying to create and the legacy of recovery and health. Um, that we're trying to facilitate and um, get my head up and involved in this network, in this community in Colorado. And I'm now on the board of Kafka and, and uh, I'm part of a best practices committee for juvenile defenders. Wonderful. You're a legend. Uh, you, everybody knows Judith. And um, <laughs> so I'm absolutely honored to have you on the podcast. Thank you so much for your information. Thank you for your kind words. Most of all, Doctor, thank you for your contribution to what's taken place in this world of recovery. You have been, everybody knows you. And I'm like, oh, yeah, I'm going to be talking to Judith. And I'm like, oh, my God, like there's nothing she doesn't know. So thank you for what you've done for people like me who just want to be out there and help. You've paved the way. You, you started the progressive treatment concepts um, years ago and years ago so I thought I was all new and flashy it turns out I'm just copying you <laughs> <laughs> no what you're what you're creating is timely and wonderful and it was a delight to talk with you and um, I, I enjoy handing handing the baton so thank you so much for for this conversation it's my pleasure stay on the line for a second I'll gladly take the baton um, parents this is the mantra um, 
you take care of yourself first, you take care of your adult relationships second, you take care of your children third, because in that way we do our best work as parents with our children. What kind of consequence could you possibly give if you're stressed, if you're angry, if you're terrified? Take care of your body, take care of your heart, take care of your mind, and take care of your adult relationships so that your support system is fully in place. I want to thank my guests. I want to thank the boss goddess, Kristen Walker, for her amazing work on Mental Health News Radio and uh, the ability to have my show, Beyond Risk and Back, on this wonderful radio. Folks, we'll talk again soon. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Beyond Risk and Back. Join us each week for your connection to experts in adolescent health and wellness, recovery, and responsibility, and also to listen to teens talk about their lives in crisis. For more information on our program for struggling teens or me, please go to firemountainprograms.com, join us on Facebook at Fire Mountain Residential Treatment Center, or at Beyond Risk and Back. Visit our YouTube channel at Fire Mountain RTC for even more support with our parent training videos. Special thanks to Mental Health News Radio for their continued love and support of our program. Please go to mentalhealthnewsradio.com to see all of their podcasts. Feel free to email me at Aaron at firemountainprograms.com.